Welcome to this talk from the Canon Do Zen Meditation Center. Located in Mountain View, California, Canon Do's meditation practice is open to the public. For more information or to get in touch with us, you can visit our website at canondo.org. That's K-A-N-N-O-N-D-O dot O-R-G. Good evening. For over millions and millions of years, the human brain evolved from something very simple to something uh, very unique uh, and more and more and more powerful. And we developed uh, self-consciousness. And over time, as our human self-consciousness expanded, people, we humans, became self-oriented, self-oriented, more, more and more preoccupied with very complex and inscrutable questions about life. We started asking, who am I? What is this? What is life for? Is there a purpose in this life? I feel a yearning. What is? What am I yearning for? What is the nature of this life? What is the nature of this humanity these are very what we call inscrutable questions so with the development of our self-consciousness we came to want to know who and what we are and we wanted to know why we are alive and to know if we have a purpose and we wanted we want to know what it is <clears throat> we are we are all in a quest for our essential self and this quest comes from a very deep feeling that says, this feeling tells us if we can answer these questions, if we can know the knowledge about ourself and about our humanity, we will find a sense of grace and a sense of peace. You know, in your life or in 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 our, in our lives, we we can pursue very dangerous activities and very risky ventures. You can climb very high, dangerous mountains. You can get in a sailboat and sail 
one of the oceans all alone by yourself, you can explore unknown jungles. Or you can sell everything you own and go start a business. There's all kinds of risky things we can do. And very often we do these things because of a personal quest. Because we want to attain a sense of ourself and we want to express ourself. We want to establish and, and maintain an identity when we don't feel we have one. Or maybe we even want to feel victorious. We want to feel successful. We want to feel like a hero. But all of these activities, whether they be risky or dangerous, or maybe because we want to find ourselves, these activities alone, through these activities alone, we cannot, we cannot come to know our essential self. Because these activities can only create an image of ourself, even when they may, may be successful, and even when they may lead to great discoveries that can benefit other people. Because these activities can only provide an answer to the question, who am I, relative to society's definitions of what constitutes a human being or what will define a human being. So even though we may pursue these identities and feel very successful doing them, our true self will still be hidden. So to really know our self and answer our very fundamental inscrutable questions about life, it is necessary to be sober, to give up the drug of self-delusion. We need to allow our minds to see clearly what it is doing and to see clearly what is going on in our world. And in addition, we need to have our mind recognize its own tendency and its own habits. In other words, We have to enable our mind to be aware without limitations and without filters. And this is not so easy, as you perhaps know from your own experience. It's not easy and it requires determinations. When you try it, you will find out how difficult it can be. What we discover is that our small mind wanders away from quiet awareness. 
and by force of habit returns to ideas of excitement and success. But in Zazen, we come back again and again to ourself, to our quiet self, to our aware self. And this takes courage. This takes determination. Because the habit of the small mind to wander away is very strong. We can find the courage to do this, to continue to learn how to express our essential self. We do it because we really want to know our essential self. And through our practice, we realize it only big mind can answer our questions. When he was asked by a student, what is Buddha? The Zen master Joshu answered, ordinary mind is Buddha. It's impossible to understand Joshu's meaning with our small mind, with our everyday mind, because that mind is dualistic. Our everyday mind discriminates between ordinary and sacred. It is the mind that creates ideas of ordinary and sacred. The things that we can experience with our senses and the things that we can explore with our logic and with our reason are termed ordinary. On the other hand, that, that which we feel very deeply about, but which is unexplainable with the intellect, is in the realm of the sacred. Buddhism says that ordinary and sacred are not different. They are not two. But we cannot say they are one. We cannot say the ordinary and sacred are one. Because when we use the term one, it leaves open the possibility of another one, a two, a three. One is part of many. When we have one, there is always room for another one. So ordinary and sacred cannot be one if we say they are one. So we just say not two. Our nature 
our human nature, our essential self, is like two coins, two sides, like two sides of a coin, but with a difference. Imagine you have a coin with an ordinary side and a sacred side, sort of like heads or tails, ordinary side and a sacred side. And imagine that coin becoming thinner and thinner. And imagine the thickness of that coin goes to zero or the coin has no more dimension. That's when ordinary and sacred are merged without separation. But our mind cannot imagine such a thing. A mental image is impossible for something that has no form. We can only recognize no separation. We can only recognize not two with a big mind. The mind of awareness only. The mind that is settled undistracted and sober. So when you sit sasen, ordinary mind is Buddha and you and Buddha are not two. Before we do Zazen, we are self-conscious. That is, we attach to some idea of ourself, to our small mind, to our ordinary mind. The mind that gets lost in the three poisons of greed, anger, and delusion. But when you sit in Zazen, ordinary mind is no longer ordinary mind. It is no longer a, no longer limited by dualistic thinking or discrimination. When you sit, ordinary mind is Buddha, not two. So. When inscrutable questions arise in your life, who am I? What is my purpose? Is there a goal? When these questions arise, you must practice sasen. You have to practice sasen. And you must follow a routine of practice and accept practice into your life. Because with intelligence and in intellect, you can create a picture of yourself as a human being. But without practice, that picture is incomplete. It is like seeing only one side of the coin. So everything we do, every activity in our life, 
is both worldly and non-worldly. Every activity is both ordinary and sacred. This is our teaching. This is the insight. So even though we may explain the activities of our life to other people by exploring why or who or when or what, we don't really need to do so. Our activity, our life is just something going on like the river. And when you understand your life in this way, you are truly you. So if you ride the bus, or you get onto BART, you can see who is getting on and who is riding and who is getting off. And you don't have to be concerned with who was that? Where is she going? You are very happy to observe who is getting on, who is getting off. But usually, the ordinary mind is very concerned with ideas of itself. And these ideas about ourselves are not real. They're just ideas that we made up. They come and go, they have no permanency, they have no reality. But our tendency is to attach to the unreal and forget about the real. When we cling to these ideas about ourselves, we cannot be ourselves, and we cannot feel grace. Our practice can help us recognize that this is what we have been doing. And with this recognition, we have a chance to allow the mind to settle down and focus its scattered feelings, bring everything together. The purpose of Zazen is not about attaining a great enlightenment or attaining anything. Suzuki Roshi warns us about this tendency to attain. He warns us about this misunderstanding. He warned us many times. So we may say, okay, then I trust you. I will not try to attain anything when I sit Zazen. And despite saying so, one day real, we realize I've been trying, I've been trying to attain something. That very recognition may be a disappointment, but it is also a great relief. Because we can feel I was not aware of what I was doing. Now I can see what I have been doing. And whatever it is we have been doing. 
in whatever way we have been fooling ourselves is not important. What is important is to become aware of the small mind, to become aware of the activity of the small mind, the mind that fools itself. And that awareness is big mind or Buddha mind. So the point of our practice is to bring this big mind into each activity to become sober. Never minding about explanations or attainment. We will find the truth of our life by fully concentrating on each activity. Then the answers to our questions will appear. Thank you. Does anybody does anybody have a question? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes, Phil. I find myself wondering. Uh, I, I, this isn't the perfect question, but I I find myself spontaneously wondering whether there is a uh, a dropping off of the questions too, in in the process that you're uh, you're painting for us, that um, <clears throat> when we when we see small mind with big mind, are there still questions remaining, or is the seeing enough? Do we have to do we have to uh, persist in in following these questions. Well, you'll never be able to stop the questions. It's 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 not even a good idea to try to stop the questions. The point is not to cling to them too much. Take a look at the question. <laughs> Take a look at the see what the question tells you. <laughs> Don't get too wrapped up in getting the perfect answer. Uh, we can take delight in recognizing that our mind is so active and it has these questions. <laughs> just, just stay sober. <laughs> thank, thank you, Phil. Hello, May. Hello, Les. Good to see you. Nice to see um, you. Hi. Um, as you probably know that, you know, technology recently made a huge advance. Very big breakthrough is ongoing recently. Um, I am definitely drunk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, is technology Buddha? Buddha and technology is not the two. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> um, anyway, you know what I, I, I don't know what I'm asking. Buddha, oh, technology 
and the Buddha are not two. Is that right? I am still drunk or I'm sober. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Interesting, interesting koan for you. Uh, John? Yes, hello. Uh, how are you? <laughs> it's a very, a very, some very novice thinking here. Okay. You say mind, and immediately it, it's, it calls to mind something, right? I think I know what mind is. And then you talk about simple mind and, um, what else? How else did you use the word bind? Um, with a little thought, all of a sudden, this idea, mind, is um, kind of hard to understand or hard to express. I, as I think about it more, I don't understand um, what it refers to. It seemed very obvious at first because I know I have a mind, or I think I know I have a mind. But then I ask, what is it? Uh -huh. And I can't get it. I don't, doesn't go anywhere. I don't know. Okay, I, okay. Yeah. That's right. That's, so that's, yeah, that's your inscrutable question. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the understanding of mind has changed over the centuries. Uh, today, I think we see mind as that which solves problems and develops relationships. Uh, but in Buddhism, uh, mind meant so early Buddhism, mind meant something different. We even had the mind only school of Buddhism it was very large. It's still around. So I think the whole notion of mind is is continuing to change so your question is right to the point we really don't know what it means it's just something a word we made up to designate something that we feel it's just a convenient handle i like that notion of something that we feel no more than something that we feel yes yeah we know there's something and we want to know what it is. So we give it a word. We give it a name. But that's just a convenience. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Yeah, well, you know, I think that's what we humans do. We name elements of our life. So it gives us a convenient and easy way to talk to each other about such things. But then we get very attached to those definitions and we lose and we think they have some reality whereas they're just just concepts to enable us convenient concepts to enable us to be a cohesive society thank you john um, you, you know, if we have no other questions at this point, 
I'd like to introduce you uh, to a visitor. Uh, William William Thomas is here. Can you? Uh, Hi, William Thomas everyone. is w William Thomas is here on Zoom. He's actually at this moment in France, and he will be coming here in about a week. So, William, could you say a little bit about what brings you to uh, San Francisco uh, next week and to Conondo and uh, what you'll be doing and uh, what sort of work, what project you're working on? I think I think everybody here will be interested in uh, uh, the project you're working on. In my job, I'm an organizational consultant, organizational behavior um, consultant, <laughs> and uh, also I'm a student of uh, LESS. Uh, I'm preparing my priesthood with Les, um, and I'm coming for one month in uh, San Francisco to the retreat at San Francisco Zen Center. Um, I have a deep interest into understanding how uh, organization can improve the quality of life at work, uh, and how organization can lower the amount of suffering of uh, the workforce um, in companies. So I'm currently working on a book with the help of Les, who is helping me a lot on this, um, which is exploring this, which is exploring um, how toxic management cultures led to such uh, um, huge suffering and disengagement of the workforce and what companies can do um, to fix this. So um, I'm currently interviewing a lot of uh, scientists, researchers, um, in various domains, anthropology, sociology, economics, and um, I'm also interviewing CEOs. Um, so I would be very glad while I'm here to meet anyone um, who wants to talk about this and their experience of um, how management can be toxic, but how it can be fixed also. And I would be very interested to hear your testimonies uh, if you want to meet me. Um, next week, I will be staying at uh, Canondo from um, Thursday to Monday um, of next week. And um, thanks to your approval. So I'm, I'm really grateful for your help uh, in my project. And um, if there is anything I can do to for, for the Sangha, I will be very glad to help. Thank you. Uh, William will be staying in the guest room in the Sangha house uh, for, for three nights next week, starting Thursday night, and we'll be at Zazen Friday morning, Saturday morning. So if you can come at those times, you get a chance to meet William and talk about his work, talk about um, his uh, practice and how it is in France and uh, why he is coming to the U.S. to do a, an intensive period, <laughs> an intensive practice period at San Francisco, all those things. So I encourage you to come come to Zazen next week. Next, well, <laughs> not just next week, but especially next week of uh, Friday and Saturday. Um, meet with William. Have a have a coffee at Starbucks. Uh, welcome him. Welcome uh, William into uh, the Conondo community. Thanks for Oh, by the way, William William lives in uh, uh, Aix en Provence, which is where Vanessa ha is living now. 
Yeah, we live 500 meters uh, apart. They've already had a meeting and uh, she's already helped him with his application to San Francisco Zen Center. So it's a small world. Yeah, we're planning to do a small uh, a small canondo here in the south of France. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Giuseppe likes that. Giuseppe likes yeah. that. Mm. Yes, hello. We are uh, creating uh, more people that are less students in Europe and um, connecting with each other. So it's beautiful. Hi, William. Nice to meet you. Hi. Where are you from? I'm, I'm in uh, Pisa, Tuscany. Oh, okay. Okay. We'll be very glad to meet you uh, if we can. I'm not interested in your subject, though. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Take note of it. Thanks. Take it. <laughs> um, hi, William. Welcome. Congratulations on your work. It sounds really interesting. I I was thinking as you were talking, um, if you have already come up with some um, ideas about uh, reducing suffering at the workplace that you could share tonight. Um, for now, um, what I can see is that there are various ways to um, reduce the suffering in the workplace. Um, there are kind of radical solutions um, by changing totally the management system in the company. For example, there are systems called the liberated companies where um, employees are invited to take more part um, into the decisions of the companies. And um, basically, people feel better because they feel that they are useful for the company um, and that uh, they, are, they are heard, uh, that uh, they are serving a purpose, they are part of the community. So it's working pretty well. Um, but um, next to this, there are um, various small solutions that can be put in place. Uh, for example, uh, a big uh, mistake uh, um, the modern management culture is doing is that um, it's believing that um, human performance has no limits. And uh, it seems like the, the, the human resources are seen exactly like uh, natural resources. They are seen without limits. And uh, unfortunately, they have limits. And uh, once you understand that the mind and uh, the uh, human capabilities have limits, um, you understand better how to make it, um, how to make people happy and performant at work. Um, for example, they have, there are a lot of researchers that have been made on um, how to find the, the most performant rhythm of work for employees. And it brought many companies, for example, in France, um, to create the four days uh, weeks uh, here, because by allowing people to have um, more time for their personal life, uh, it would allow them to be happier and to be more performant in their professional life. So there are various small things that can be put in place 
for example, um, um, creating mandatory breaks during the day because it's forced people to disconnect um, for 15, 20 minutes from the work they are doing and to release the tension, to, to release uh, uh, their attention too. Um, so I think um, to be more generalistic, yes, yeah, the, the first step will be to understand that human, human brain is limited in its capacities and that the most performant employee you could have is an unhappy employee and a fulfilled employee. Thank you. May I ask uh, another, a question, William? Yeah. I think Les said something about uh, why we should ask you why you're coming to the United States to study this rather than uh, doing it maybe in France. I, I don't know, he didn't say the latter part, but I wondered with uh, four, 400,000 people on the streets uh, protesting the, the uh, extension of the retirement age to uh, 65 or whatever, whether part of your uh, interest in studying uh, workforce in the United States is that we need more help and being uh, proactive about our interests. <laughs> um, I would say my, my main interest um, for the US uh, uh, Zen community is that um, there, there is a very big uh, Sangha in Europe and in France, um, but it's a very traditional um, practice, very Japanese. So, for example, um, they they do not have much connections with the society. And what I love about American sangha, and especially from uh, with the San Francisco sangha and the Canando, is that um, I think it's it's I agree totally with this philosophy that Zen is part of all the life with everything. And it includes jobs, it includes personal life, it includes um, the society. And Zen is not only something you do in the monastery. Um, Zen is not only for people who want to totally uh, uh, retire in the monastery uh, full time, uh, leaving their kids, leaving their wives and everything. But Zen is for everyone, for every kind of situation. Everything Zen can be put in every part of uh, your life. And um, that's why I got really attached to um, this um, American Sangha. And that's how I got in touch too with uh, Les at first, a few years ago, because he was so interested into how Zen can uh, help to improve um, the quality of life at work. Thank you. That's great to know that one reason you're here is because of of Canon though and, and less. Yeah. Not totally only fully. Your, your research. No, no, no. <laughs> Thank you. With pleasure. Any more questions? Um Comments. I'm curious to know if Thomas <laughs> has connected with Janine in France. 
um, I, I did, um, when I was studying, uh, when I was still a student, I did a research paper about um, how Zen can help um, to improve the workplace. And I did make interviews with uh, Jean-Yves uh, various times, and he was very helpful. Um, Les, I did have a, a question, though. Um, what you were mentioning around Zazen is not for attainment or enlightenment. Would you Would you mind expanding more on that? A key component of... Uh of the teaching and I think the guiding principle, the guiding force of Buddhism and what uh, the Buddha taught, uh, we, are, we all are already enlightened. So it's useless to try to attain that which we already have. But without understanding the teaching and, and actually feeling it and knowing it, we believe we have to attain something. So... <clears throat> The, the point of Zazen, if, if Zazen has a purpose at all, it is to explore our inherent enlightenment, to, what, to bring it alive, to the term that is used a lot is actualize it, to bring it out, to recognize it, to have it explode on us, or maybe come upon us little by little. And, uh, you know, we can see this principle illustrated in many of the Zen stories that you'll find in some of the literature. The exchanges between master and disciple in China and Japan. There are many stories uh, that will illustrate this point that you are, we are already enlightened. That's the short answer. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. Yeah. More questions? More comments? Yeah, since we have a few more minutes, maybe I'll, I'll ask a question. Um, Les, I think at the beginning of your talk, you mentioned something about the human brain. And then, um, William was talking about how uh, how one of the causes that um, lead to suffering in the workplace is this idea that um, the human performance have no, has no limits. Uh, so during the talk, I was thinking also uh, May mentioned the artificial intelligence. So it seemed it, this this idea came to my mind that. Uh, as the world, or, or at least part of the world, certainly it seems that in Silicon Valley that's true. There is a lot of emphasis on the brain, on growing the brain, even on um, 
artificial intelligence in a way is, is a way to create external brains to kind of achieve that performance that has no limits. So th there seems to be a lot of um, emphasis in the world on the brain, on growing the brain. So do you, what do you think about that? Do you think it's very, it's very difficult to see the other side on growing the heart. Of course, there are many initiatives in the world that also emphasize, emphasize growing the heart. But it, growing the brain seems to be more stronger. So I wonder, what, what do you think of that less? And do you see any risks on that? Or why, why do you think we're doing that so much, growing the brain? Mm -hmm. uh, we humans are looking for what uh, people call a better life, a life with more excitement, a life with more comforts, a life with more diversity, a life with more wealth. And um, so we use our brain to try to come up with things like that. We come up with products, both uh, material products and uh, non-material products. And we've created a culture uh, that's continually chasing after products or ideas that will make our life more, well, we call it better or advanced. And um, you know, we, uh, and so uh, I think one of the things things that w William will be finding out, or if he, he's already found it out, um, you know, you can contrast getting on BART during rush hour or getting on the freeway during rush hour and everybody going to work to increase, to use and increase the power of their brain to make more product. And what people really say is, I, I sure like my day off when I just walked in the park and sat with the birds. Mm. I think we're discovering that, like William is discovering, this this push to use the brain entirely for productivity and efficiency um, has been in the wrong direction. Not totally, of course. We have to have some progress. But we've emphasized it so much, we have forgotten how to live with the rest of the world. Go for a swim in the cold ocean, and you don't think about anything. All you feel is cold and wet and excited, and you don't think about anything. You don't use your brain. And those are the things we really want to do. We've, we're, we're reaching a limit. We, maybe we have already reached the limit of how much productivity we can produce. Anyway, that's what started. I, a, a little bit of that is what started me on Zen practice 50 years ago. Something like that. Hmm. <laughs> what am I doing? Why am I doing this? 
anyway, it's a it's a wonderful question, and it, uh, it would be great to have a to get together and to brainstorm on it, and just to share ideas about it. That's that's a wonderful question, Teresa. Thank you. Thank you. This talk was brought to you by the Canando Zen Meditation Center in Mountain View, California. For more information or to support this podcast, go to canando.org. That's K A N N O N D O dot O R G.